0: I'm Bill Griffith, and this is the Larkin Hoffman Real Estate Podcast. I recently sat down with three colleagues from the City of Bloomington, Minnesota. Carla Henderson, the City's Community Development Director, Faith Jackson, the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer, and Erica Coleman, the City's Administrator for Housing and Redevelopment. I wanted to talk with each of them about their experience as black women working in real estate. In the first episode of this three-part series, we talked about the value of black women finding other black women as allies who will support them and lift them up. In today's episode, my guests share a few of their own experiences to help explain the long history of racism in real estate. I continued our discussion from our previous episode with my own observation. So, women are underrepresented. I know that from working, you know, whether it's engineers, architects, brokers, lawyers, but black women are even more so underrepresented in real estate. So I've been in this real estate community for, well, 35 years at Lark and a couple years at the city, a long time. And I always, I'll be honest, I kind of scratch my head. I feel like some of our efforts fall flat and I don't know why. And I really would honestly like to know, what do we do? What do we all do? collectively as a real estate community. Erica Coleman, administrator of Bloomington's Housing and Redevelopment Authority, kicked off the conversation.
1: Well... There's a lot we can do, and I think we're doing it. So I will say, one, real estate's a key economic driver of this country. I mentioned I've been in real estate for 25 years. I am a licensed real estate broker and have been involved in the Realtors Association, which is the largest trade organization in the United States. They're very influential and have a lot of power. However, it's very white male, and that is by design. And I talk about real estate being a key economic driver of this country. We just had a proclamation at the city of Bloomington proclaiming Juneteenth that specifically called out that the industry of enslaving Africans was a driver in this country that was able to put this country on the map as a world power. Well, in states like West Virginia and Kentucky, we were able to be mortgaged as human beings we are real estate, at least then, as chattel property. And so I feel like what we're looking at here and what we're dealing with here in 2023 directly ties into face work. And it directly ties into real estate as a whole, looking at it as a larger picture and not just the built environment, but the economic driver that it is and the ripples that it has. And so why we don't see black women in particular, in larger numbers in real estate, is because we have actively been kept out. I used to be chair of a Twin Cities National Association of Real Estate Brokers. It is for black real estate professionals. That is the focus of it. Well, we were the oldest organization, and we were created in 1946. And I say we because we were not allowed to be realtors, There's a whole separate organization that was created and called Realtist because we were not allowed to join the real estate brokers, the real estate board of brokers. And it wasn't until maybe the 70s or 80s we were actually allowed as black people. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is the term Realtor means that you are a part of the Realtor Association and you subscribe to a specific code of ethics. That came out of Minnesota. That actual term was coined in Minnesota. And it was actually coined in Minnesota and also kept from black people being able to join it. And so I get very passionate about real estate and housing as one piece of real estate because I understand the historical context in which it relates to. And the fact of the matter is is that even if you're not buying and selling or building or doing architecture, you are actively engaging in real estate every single day because there's another component of it. And so one of the things that we do is educate ourselves and be aware of the history. You don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. We don't just start right now. This is deep. This is intentional that black women in particular— have been kept out. You mentioned the post that you saw on LinkedIn and there was a quote in that post that I think went over a lot of people's heads. And the quote was the most unprotected and the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. And that's a quote by Malcolm X. It is still true to this day in 2023, it's the person, not just the woman, not just the woman the person. Yeah, most disrespected. The person. most disrespected person in America is the black woman. We're still disrespected. And layered in that, because I'm going to call it out, is colorism. I am of a lighter tone in my skin where there are other black women that are not, and they're even more disrespected or are not even accepted as an individual to be allowed to show up as themselves just because of the tone of their skin, the hue of their skin. That is still happening today everywhere we are. I didn't know we were going to get so deep. This No, is,
0: thank you. But I, honestly, I, I, this, is, this is what this is about. Carla Henderson, Bloomington's Community Development Director, continued the thread. This
2: is why she is in the perfect role. I love her. She's our housing expert. And I will tell you... She has taken that HRA, and it's not your grandparents' HRA anymore. (laughs) And she has shifted the whole focus. I remember the coffee I had with you in terms of like, Bloomington has a population that is experiencing homelessness. Erica's going to be presenting to city council on an assessment that she led and also talking about her work. Because when we talked about just having the consultant go up and, and talk about it, I said, I think it's really important that the community, council, and stakeholders hear the work that you've been doing with the HRA that will complement what else will come out of that assessment. And she's a big proponent on the uh, homeownership, I mean, council, that was a big initiative for our city council. Erica took that initiative, and this is the greatest compliment that can happen. I text her when it happened. Myself and our city manager went to the breakfast for Project for Pride and Living. 700 people in this room. And there was a panel. A gentleman by the name of Henry Rucker got up there. Of course, he didn't know we were in the audience. Erica wasn't even there. And he talked about the work being done in the city of Bloomington. Can you imagine, like, I mean, everybody, we were like, oh, my gosh. I said, Erica, that's the greatest compliment. Somebody... Is talking about the work you're doing, and you don't even know about it, right? You don't even know about it, but just know that her work and her team's work is just being recognized, and that's what makes me so proud.
0: You know, if it makes people like me uncomfortable, that's all the better, right? Because, you know, I remember having a conversation with Nakima Levy-Pounds, and it was at the law school, and she and my brother were friends. I said something really stupid, <laughs> I'll admit it. I said, well, real estate's colorblind. And she, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That was, But she wasn't even, you know, I think she might have come across the table at me. <laughs> And I was like, wow, there's some learning going on here. <laughs> so, you know, it's helpful to be that frank and make people a little uncomfortable in their seats. We can have this conversation, you know, it can fall on deaf ears or it can— fall on fertile ground. But I don't, how does it go? How does it keep moving?
1: I will say it keeps moving by something that faith always says. It's about doing the work. We can talk till we're blue in the face, but we're showing up and showing out. And the reason I say that is because we are actively doing the work. We're not just talking about, oh, this looks bad, or this is this, or this is that, or you didn't do that right. No, we're like, oh, okay, homelessness, got it. Let's do an assessment. Let's move forward. Let's do the work and just provide you the data. Let's give you the information. Small business center, that's doing the work. But Faith says all the time, we're doing the work. It's about doing the work. I have no interest in having conversations and constantly meeting to have conversations when there are action steps we all can take. And when you take those action steps, it it becomes very clear and evident who is on board and who is not. It also becomes clear and evident even in the Minnesota nice culture of passive aggressiveness, who is trying to completely impede the work based on prejudice, biases, and or racism, and who is just not equipped but willing to learn. And so we keep it going by showing up every day, but showing up as our full selves, but then showing out by doing the work.
2: Yeah, I think also I will add yes and we have to be intentional. And I believe we've <laughs> Old Cedar, Old Shakopee. You know, one of the worst intersections we have with crashes. And you know, we city staff came together last year. We're like, "Oh, we need to figure what we're going to do with this, redevelop it." And we hired a firm to do developer roundtables. And I remember Erica saying to me, "And make sure they bring developers' color." And <laughs> they did. And when we talked to those developers later, they said this is the first time this consultant's ever reached out to me. Like, they would not have been at the table had we not said, and include some developers of color. So it's, it's you got to be intentional about it. Because we know right now in Bloomington, we've never had a developer of color on a project. And that is something that the three, I mean, we talk about a lot. We, you know, have forged relationships, because I believe that's where it needs to start. Trying to find the right fit, the right project for a developer of color, and we're gonna get there. I'm I'm 100% confident we will. But we have to just push back, right? Or we would have sat there with eight different developers and they would all been kind of the same, and you know, but we gotta provide them a seat too.
0: Let's talk about what you've seen in the country. There are models, right? Things that have worked, things that you'd like to bring here, things you'd like to try. I mean, what I'm sensing, you all have one thing in common, you're, and maybe it's your shared experience, but thinking out of the box, thinking, you know, kind of breaking down the old thoughts. Any place in the country that you'd say they, they understand?
1: Honestly, I can't think of one place in the country that I'm just like, yeah, they got it right. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's, it's multi layered. Yeah, I think there's different components, and Minnesota's so unique it's just so unique in that you have to just kind of make sure things are tweaked for Minnesota. It's unique in the fact that black people are not a very large portion of the population. I was raised in the church. And so one of the things that always comes to mind is what you do for the least of these. That's not to say that as black people, we are not powerful and creative and have what we need. It's to say that These systems of inequity are designed this way. And so in order to get at equitable practices, you have to be intentional and focus on the populations that everything is designed to be against them. That is foundational Black Americans. That is Black people who are descendants from enslaved Africans specifically. Not anything against our immigrant brothers and sisters. It's just there's a specific thread in this nation that if you tug on it, you just upset everything. And that is foundational Black people. One of the things of uh, homelessness, Black men are overrepresented in homelessness. That is on purpose. That is completely on purpose. However, as the administrator for the Housing Redevelopment Authority, the HRA, I believe housing is a basic human right, which Really odd, right? Because I was like completely trained in real estate. (laughs) It's totally about the money. But I just believe that as human beings, we are doing human beings wrong. And the fact of the matter is, is that how we need to be intentional about saying, I'm going to do this for black people in particular, because once it's done for black people or it's allowed for them to have access to the opportunity intentionally everyone else is going to prosper, literally. And so I think that becoming more and more intentional about that and unapologetic about that and doing the research and fighting back and pushing back to say, this is what we're going to do. Talking about having developers of color, they can be at the table, but then you have to now push back on everybody else in the industry. Whether it is lenders, whether it is nonprofits, whether it's philanthropy, you literally have to push back on everybody else because they're considered high risk, which is coded language. Oh, because they're black, they're high risk just because they don't have their daddy or uncle being able to bring them up in the business like that. That's that's just. It's preposterous.
0: Or they don't have the experience because they've never had the experience. Right, so and how do they you get can't the get the experience if yeah.
1: nobody's going to allow you to have the opportunity. So I think it comes back to what Carlos mentioned, it's intentionality, but it's also built off of the work that faith does because faith works a lot of times behind the scenes where there may be a policy or there may be a sentence or there may be a program that people don't necessarily look at or consider, but that one thing, completely opens up the floodgates.
0: It makes sense. If you start with those that have been most excluded, then everybody else gets to rise with that. Mm -hmm. Is that the idea? For sure. Faith, you want to talk about that? Is uh, in your role, professional role?
3: Sure. I love this conversation. I'm just sitting here and taking it all in. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about coming into this conversation was around appraisals as it relates to sort of disparities and appraisals. And it was top of mind for me because my father, he owns like a couple of like homes in Wise Point, Mississippi, a really, really small town. And he's just entered that space after he retired. And he's really, really excited about it. And so he does work through the Section H program for the majority of them. And then some of them are just rented out to people. So he's been very like invested in that. And because he's really invested in, that means we, the family, we all get the stories. And I, Of course, right? Like, even though I do not practice, you cannot tell my dad that his daughter is not a lawyer, right? And like, so there are things (laughs) happening. He's calling me. He's like, how do we do this? How do we do this, right? So I spend a lot of my time helping him through that process. And one of the things that came up most recently is that he found out that not in the houses that he rents out, but our family home was appraised for a lot less than the other homes around us. And so that got me like digging into appraisal disparities and spending a lot of time looking into that. And I just, I was not even aware, right, of like the injustice that's being done. I think it's like something like $1.56 billion that's lost from Black families and appraisal disparities and I know we've all heard the stories about Allen, California, where I think it was like $300,000 more that this person's house was appraised for, right? When they had white people move in and pretended there was their home and things like that. But what's inspired me about my dad's story is that, like, when he found out about it, he was so upset. And he was like, I'm going down there now. Like, you know, and he's like getting things activated. But it didn't stop with him, right? Then he started talking to his friends about it. And so now everybody's like paying attention to see what's happening and why is this happening. And so, when you talk about, like, are there models out there that I think where people get it right, one of the things that I've noticed as a model for the NAACP and then Legal Defense Fund is that they have a program for law students when you're graduated from college. You can apply to be a part of their program, and if you're selected, you've worked with them for, I think it's like eight years or something like that. They pay for your entire law school matriculation, and then they send you to the South to do civil rights work. And so. I uplift that program, right, because I think it's extraordinary. And Gino, who's the lead of that work, he does, like, really amazing work, sort of making sure that they're getting people. Even recently, I think there was a student from Minnesota, right, that was accepted into that program. But I, I think making that connection between people who need help and people who have the resources and understanding and knowledge to help them Is critical because I think about my father's situation, like, I mean, I can try to help him navigate that. But then I tap on people in my network because I'm like, hey, like, who can help me? Who understands this? How do we make this better? And then he has the connections to the people who are being harmed. And so, like, making that connection between people with resources and understanding and privilege and then those people who are boots on the ground being harmed, I think, is so important. Because without that, we continue to perpetuate those disparities and, and I mean, I mean when you think about that, like 1.56 billion of dollars lost in disparity, discrimination, and appraisal discrimination it's just like insane. Imagine if all of that money was going back into the community. And then the other thing I'll uplift is that, and I'm talking a lot about the South, not Minnesota. But the reason why <laughs> is because with my friends, my group of friends, a lot of things that we talk about is like where there's more sort of affluence and privilege for Black people, right, whether it's D.C. or the Twin Cities, I do think there should be a requirement, but hopefully a desire, to then go back and help people who don't have access to that. And so I try to connect people who have access for people who don't. But a lot of the things that we see in the South right now is that we have people who own homes, grandparents who've owned homes, and their children may not live there anymore. Their grandchildren moved on. And you can go along the street and you see all of these signs saying so much is in property taxes. This has to be paid. If you, you know, if this is your home or if you have a claim to it in so many days, like, then it gets back. It gets reverted back, right, to the state. And there are people who just don't have the resources to understand, like, how to create a will, right, and how to pass that property on. And so it's loss. And then the other thing that happens is that, you know, sometimes there are people who understand the value of their grandmother's property. They're like, yes, my grandmother gave me this home. I'm going to keep it. We're going to, you know. And then you have these predatory, like, I guess, buyers who are sending them mail all the time saying, hey, we need to sell this home. We're going to give you this much money right now. And it's like. For a 24-year-old, right, <laughs> getting a letter in the mail like that, you're like, oh, why not? Or they'll send letters that say, you owe so much in property taxes when it's not true, right? And they don't understand this, and so they get wrapped into these loans. And so I, to, to answer that question about, like, what is something that could be done, and then also what's sort of a promise and practice for me, I think having people who have sort of an understanding of how to navigate the real estate system, like Carla and Erica and others, connected with people who do not, Is so powerful.
0: Tune into our next episode to learn more about the work being done on racial covenants and just deeds in the city of Bloomington. Thank you to my three guests, Carla Henderson, Erica Coleman, and Faith Jackson. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Larkin Hoffman Real Estate Podcast. I'm Bill Griffith.